Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that we can um, be here and to uh, just marinate on your word and marinate on your truth and marinate on what it means to follow you and, and the vision and, and to live with anticipation for what lies ahead on this journey uh, as we desire to follow Jesus. Um, I pray that, God, this time would be an encouragement, a challenge, a way in which we are able to see with new eyes uh, what it is that you are leading us into uh, for this new year and wherever we are, what stage of life, whatever difficulties and circumstances we find ourselves in, that uh, we may see all those things uh, through your eyes and live with your heart and your desires in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me read the passage. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 8. Uh, and it's a particularly, I think it's one of those passages that for me means a lot because it's when I think about what it is that I want to be able to say on the last day before Jesus, this passage pretty much sums it up in a lot of ways. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, this is the word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, Pastor Garfield shared with me a lot of the interesting and important transitions your church has gone through. It sounds like this is what, your second Sunday here, which is really exciting, really awesome. And um, there's a lot of difficulty and challenges I know that you face in light of being in a new building, in a new place. Uh, but it also carries with that a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement. Uh, you're, I, I don't, is Berkeley in school yet? No, right? So even with the new school year coming up, uh, and maybe you're not in school anymore and you're a postgrad, the idea of like, hey, maybe you're, uh, what is it, life outside of college and that big, brave new world of having an actual job, right? And the excitement and anticipation of what does that look like or whatever life stage it is. This is really that season and that time where there's a lot to look forward to. And I think just hearing also the story of Emerge, you're in a season and time where there's a lot to look forward to, a lot that you're anticipating, a lot that you're hoping for that God might do through your church and through, uh, through you all in this community. And the reality is, is as the church of God and as the people of God, we're all called to live with anticipation, right? The life of being a Christian is not simply one that's purely focused on uh, what you're doing in the moment, and it's not one that simply always looks at the past, but it's also one that is called to live with anticipation. 
again, thinking about all the ministry opportunities that might happen and emerge over the next couple of months, uh, being excited about that, thinking about ways to engage others outside of these walls and to grow alongside them, how to serve your neighbors, and even for yourself, the excitement of growing in Jesus in this coming year. What does it mean to perhaps have deeper roots in your faith, uh, to answer some of the hard questions that maybe you're still asking or uh, address some of the doubts that maybe you're still wrestling with? Uh, this coming year might be an, uh, an opportunity for that. And even just with the church calendar, right? Uh, if you ask any pastor, you might be in the middle of a sermon series in August going into September. But trust me, Pastor Garfield, myself, we're already thinking about Christmas. We're thinking about how are we going to do services come Advent season. And then once that hits, all right, great, we got through it. Now we're thinking about Good Friday and Easter. Like it's just we're always anticipating things on the church calendar. We're thinking about, oh, we got to get these people baptized. Uh, we have an anniversary. Last year, my church celebrated its 10th anniversary. Oh, we have a big old party for that. Oh, I got to think about how to do that. You're constantly anticipating and thinking about the future as the church. But there's always this one biblical event in Scripture, and frankly, we sang about it a couple of times because uh, I think it's Elliot. He picked a couple of great songs that really kind of fit the theme of this, this um, passage. There's one ultimate anticipatory event that occurs in Scripture uh, that we are sometimes perhaps we think the least about or the most reluctant about to either talk about, to engage with, or to wrap our hearts and minds around. And it's the event of the day when Jesus returns, right? There's a whole book in the Bible, the very last one, Revelation, that tells us or gives us a vision of what that looks like. And there's multiple books throughout the Bible, whether Daniel, Ezekiel, that prophesy, and again, give you a picture of that. And here in uh, the Apostle Paul's letters, you have uh, the Apostle himself foretelling and saying, this is something I'm really looking forward to. And yet it's weird because all of us don't necessarily share that same excitement, right? None of us have that. First off, we don't have it on the calendar because we don't really know when it's going to happen. And so it's hard to get excited about something that you, you don't know what's going to happen, right? Um, other reasons why perhaps it maybe isn't on the forefront of our mind, uh, there's ways in which this has been a cause for division and disagreement, right? A lot of people have different views on what the end will look like. A lot of different ways in which, was well, it going to be here, there? Is it going to be this person who's going to bring out the end? Is this the really evil one? Is this the person sent by Satan? Uh, is this the real Messiah? So on and so forth. And so there's all kinds of reasons why people don't get excited about that piece because it's just, it causes too much division. I don't want to think about it. And then maybe there's just the really personal reality of like, hey, Y'all are a younger group than the people in my church. You've got so much life you still want to live. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back, right? Because I want to be able to raise kids. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back because I still want to travel the world. And so we have perhaps bucket list items, things we want to accomplish, things we want to see. And that's understandable because, again, our hearts are wired to, to, to see, view, live, experience these things. And so we may not have on the top of our mind as a chief desire Boy, do I, boy, can I not wait for Jesus to return? So it's understandable that that, as much as it's the, the highest anticipated event in all the writers of Scripture, it might not be for us the most anticipated event. So what I want us to do today is to take this passage and ask ourselves, if this was such a big deal, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter in all the New Testament. 
After he writes this letter and sends it off, he pretty much is sent to die, right? Because he's writing this from a Roman jail, and he's executed soon after he writes it. So this is his very last letter, and his very last words to a faithful follower and partner in the gospel in Timothy. And you see in our passage here how for him, the future hope and the anticipation of Christ's return grounded him and prepared him for whatever was coming his way. Right? No more is this person saying, I can't wait for retirement, right? Uh, I can't wait to collect my retirement check, or I can't wait to just spend the rest of my days playing golf, all right? Here you have in Paul someone who said, I can't wait for the Lord to return. And that was the ground of his hope, and not only his hope, but then the hope that he says, Timothy, this is your hope too. As you are continuing the work of church planting, as you are continuing the work of preaching and building churches up, this is to be your hope and the hope of God's people as well. This is why you should persevere no matter what the challenges are. This is why you should stay the course of faith. Why? Because Jesus will return. And so for us today, and and hopefully something to encourage you with today, whether it's as you think about this coming year and you're excited about all the classes you're taking or you're excited about finally this opportunity uh, to, like, get graduate and get the degree you want or just even thinking about what the future holds, that at the core of why you're excited and the reason why you want to do these things, the hope that sits at the core of whatever lies ahead in your journey, that it would be the anticipation of Christ fulfilling all things that would be grounding you for whatever lies ahead. So that's what we're going to think about today. You with me on that? Good? All right. So I'm going to think about it in two ways. First, we're going to think about how that is a hope we have that is steadfast. And then second of all, it's a hope that's a victorious hope. So a steadfast hope and then a victorious hope. So how is this a steadfast hope for Paul? How is it something that helps ground him, root him in a reality that keeps him from being shaken, that keeps him from being, you know, uh, going off course in life. It says here in verse 1 how for Paul, uh, that the, what he does is he connects Christ's appearance. He says, Christ will come, and when he comes, this is the amazing thing he's going to do, Timothy. The kingdom is going to come as well. The kingdom is going to come. Now, we hear that. Don't know what that means. Maybe if you're new to Jesus or new to the Bible, understandably so. What that means, it's a term that kind of carries on a grand picture, a picture of the fulfillment of everything, right? The promise that there's going to be a day where God's rule, God's reign, his peace, his mercy, everything we know that God is, because Jesus himself lived it and exemplified it, that all those things that we know by faith that are true, we will one day actually see. That there will be no more injustice, in a world that we constantly hear stories of injustice. That there will be a world with no more war in a world that's constantly at war. We're in a time and a place where everything is, bro- everything broken, ev- is broken, and, and, and the promise that Paul says is when the kingdom comes, it will be perfectly and beautifully restored. As the author of The Lord of the Rings writes, uh, J.R. Tolkien, he says that all things sad will come untrue. And every enemy of God will be overthrown and there will be no more challengers. So Paul's already stating this is what happens. 
This is the vision and the glory and the beauty of what happens when the kingdom comes when Jesus returns. And what great hope and comfort that might be for you if you're in the midst of turmoil or you're in the midst of facing challenges yourself where you're suffering an injustice or you're experiencing a battle, not with even someone else, maybe in your own heart. The second thing, he says also that not only will the kingdom come, Paul talks about how the living and the dead will be judged. The living and the dead will be judged. And judgment, it's one of those like, hmm, only God can judge me. It's one of those words you don't want to use, right? You don't want to be judging people. Don't be judgy. Uh, The kind of term you might use with your peers or you hear your peers say all the time. But God's judgment is a good thing. Because God's judgment is perfect in its righteousness and its holiness. It, and so when he returns in Christ, what we're talking about is a righteousness and justice across all the land that will be perfectly established where everyone will be held accountable. Anything that's been done in the darkness will be revealed by the light of Jesus in his appearance. You know, one of the most regular objections to Christianity, one of the most regular things, I did actually, uh, I did college ministry. I worked with college students directly for a good 12 years down at uh, UC San Diego, which I also call the school of UC Berkeley rejects because that's what it was for me. (laughs) Couldn't get in here, guys. You guys are too smart for me. So, but um, I did ministry with them and uh, it was a regular objection to Christianity. It was a regular objection of if, if, how can you have a just God? How can God be just and good if bad people get away with evil all the time. And the reality is, is they don't. With God, they actually don't. They may get away with it now, in this life, in this period, maybe in the, in the time that we live in, limited in 70 or 80 years, God willing, however long you live. But if we believe... And we do believe by faith that God will return and he will judge the living and the dead. Then there is a final judgment. And nobody will get away with the things that have been done or that they have left undone. Yes, justice is imperfect in our time because we are relying upon right now a system that is man-made by earthly authorities that God has placed but are far from perfect. There will be a day where all those authorities will then bow their knee to the great authority of God who will reign in his perfect justice and perfect righteousness, and he will usher it all in his return. So the real issue, if this is an objection for you or a problem with you, is actually, if you don't believe in God, how do you have justice at all? If you don't believe in God, how does justice get handed out? People do get away with things, and they will forever get away with it. That's the world without God. Without a Christ, a Savior, that will come and restore all things. There is no promise or hope of justice served in that case. And so for Paul, that's a great comfort. And for us as well, whatever it is that you go through, that should be a comfort for you too. I hope that's a comfort for you. Whatever it is that you are going through. Lastly, in Christ's return, we have an opportunity to celebrate and party the way we've never before. Because what we're talking about now, when Jesus shows up, his victory, God's victory, will be finally and fully complete, right? Um, The Bible talks often about how uh, the picture of Christ as the groom 
right, and the church as the bridegroom. And the picture of Christ's return is always pictured as the wedding day in which the bridegroom, the church, is finally presented before God in all her beauty and splendor, in perfection and radiance, white and holiness. And when Christ finally is able to take her by the hand and they will be united the way that they always were meant to be, right? So what we're in right now, we're just in that, like, engagement stage, <laughs> if, if you want to put it that way. And it's exciting, and it's awesome, and it's beautiful, but it's still not the full thing yet. And the beauty is we get to be a part of the full thing. We get to have the, the, the real wedding party. The other aspect to that is that there's also the reality that that means we're not perfected yet. There's a lot of brokenness still around us and, frankly, within us. Right? There's a lot of ways in which we're still trying to understand how it is that bad things happen or evil things happen both in our lives or even our own selfish desires. How, man, why do I keep doing the dumb things I keep doing, the wrong things I keep thinking, saying the stupid things that I shouldn't be saying? Right? And we're still warring there. And the reality that the, uh, the devil and Satan is still attacking us and challenging us. A way to think about this is, is, is let me give you a way to think about this. Um, April 9th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrenders on the Confederate side, officially ending the Civil War. Now, the reality is, is this. They didn't exactly have Twitter to tell everyone that it was over, right? And so while the, general, the, the main general of the Confederate Army had surrendered and officially ended the war, so many Confederate soldiers still fought because they did not know that their leader had surrendered and the war was over. So they have cases. In one case that was brought up, there was a, a boat, the CSS Shenandoah. And so you can imagine, it's one thing for even ground soldiers in another state to not hear about the war ending. Think about it if you're on a boat that hasn't been back to dock, right? And so for two more months, the Confederate boat, the Shenandoah, sank six more ships in battles before even realizing the war was already over. There was nothing to fight for. You had already lost. And so the reality is that the time that we're in, and this is the time that Paul recognizes he's in, and the, Paul that, the time that Paul's telling Timothy, this is what we're in right now, is that Jesus already does reign. He's already risen and ascended to the right hand of God, seated at the throne of glory and power. He owns and gets to say everything is mine. It's just that Satan, sin, and death, they're defeated. They just don't know it yet. Or they're not really willing to recognize and acknowledge the fact that the war is over. And so they're fighting little battles with us. They're tempting us still today. And what I'm saying is there's a day. Paul is saying here, there's a day. Victory will be fully and finally declared. Satan will know exactly where he stands, and he will be tossed into the lake of fire, vanquished for all eternity, and we will not have to live with our own evils and sins and struggles, nor with those of others. That's a glorious sight to behold, isn't it? Just the idea of that. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Paul's saying. This is what you need to be grounded in and to hope in and to trust in. Every battle will cease and we will eternally rejoice because Jesus has returned. That is the type of hope that it grounds us as we anticipate the appearing of Christ, molding and shaping how we live. This means, right, think about all the things. Um, 
let's take the church, for example. And I should say church as in the big C. Like, you think about the big church. However you want to define that, what that looks like, you know, whatever terms you want to say, right? How the big church so often has had so much infighting because we're constantly getting distracted on minor issues that when Jesus returns, frankly, he'll be like, that's not a battle worth fighting over, right? And then think about even in your own heart, the things that you are constantly wrestling with or challenged with or you think are the most important things that God says, these things will not last for all eternity. Nothing gold will stay. I want you and your heart, all of you. And that's what God is inviting you to give over today. And so Paul then tells Timothy, in light of this, in light of everything that you should be grounded in, in the return of Christ, this is what you are to do. And when Paul says to Timothy, this is what you are to do, at least coming from the perhaps theological uh, world that I come from, uh, I recognize that Timothy is a, kind of has a calling, right? He was called to be a pastor. He was called to be a church planner. That's not necessarily the calling all of us have. It's not the calling, my, for, at least for my family, my wife has. She married into it. She didn't choose it. Uh, and that's not necessarily a calling for all the members of my own church to be pastors, per se, or to preach the word or to be evangelists in that particular way. So when Paul says, preach the word to Timothy, it doesn't necessarily mean all of you now need to go plant your own churches and preach the word. But what it does mean, as someone who perhaps may not be called to ministry but is a Christian, it means be in the church and hear the word preached. Does that make sense? That's, in essence, what Paul's then saying to you if you're not called to ministry. Now, if you're talking to Garfield, Pastor Garfield, then yes, that's what he's supposed to do. Same way I'm supposed to do that, right? But he says to Timothy, preach the word. Hear it regularly preached for us or for you to read and meditate, be centered on God's word. When he says reprove, rebuke, exhort, those are things you can do, right? In essence, what it means really is speak the truth in love to your neighbor, to one another. Remind yourself and others of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Show them and point them the hope of Christ's return. In verses 3 and 4, Paul warns, and he says, look, the reality is we live in a time, and especially I think you will all notice this now, we live in a time where people want to listen to what they want to hear, that we have echo chambers, right? Our whole worlds are surrounded by echo chambers. We get to carefully craft and compose worlds in which we get to hear what we want to hear all the time. So whatever our inner desires are, everything that surrounds us, we've now been able to make a world where we get to hear, uh, we get to have everything around us. Uh, we've carefully crafted it to say, oh yeah, you do whatever you want. Whatever your desire is, you should give into it. And what Paul's saying is that there are people who will give over to self-satisfying and self-serving desires, right, instead of hearing the truth and love spoken to them, right? And so Paul says, remain centered instead on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's verses 3 and 4. To remain centered on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A faith that becomes sight in the face of our returning Redeemer. Friends, this is the way to have steadfast faith, man. It's the way to persevere. It's the only way to make it through. 
because you're going to face all kinds of challenges. I know for a fact, being Christian here in the East Bay, and even particularly right here, where I think Berkeley is one of the areas where you are in the heat of the battle, to be steadfast and to hold on to hope means to remember Christ and to be rooted in the promise that he will come and one day as the kingdom, as Berkeley will be. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The idea that one day this campus and this area surrounding it and everything you see and touch will be redeemed and restored the way in which Christ has always intended it to be. And that's the vision that hopefully your church is living out. And that's the vision hopefully that as you go about your day, And you live what it means, whether to be a student, whether to work here, whether to raise a family here, that that is the vision that is rooting you as to why you have given your life to Christ and why you love the church and love the city. That's the steadfast hope that's at root in you. I want to talk also about a victorious hope. How is it that we can have a sense of victory? Not in the sense of uh, self-delusional, hey, we won, I get to do what I want, right? but a a victory that's rooted, again, in the coming of Christ. Verse 6, again, I I shared earlier how Paul knew his time was up. Paul knew he was going to die soon. That's what 2 Timothy is all about, right? Verse 6, it says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And then comes to what I, again, this is the verse that for me is, man, if I get to one day with confidence say this before Jesus, Uh, what joy in my heart it will be. And I pray that this would be the testimony when I die that my wife, my kids, and my church will say about me that I have fought the good fight, that I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And I pray that that would be something you would be able to say in good conscience on whatever last breath you might have before the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Note what Paul doesn't say. Note the wording, right? What it doesn't say is, I have won the good fight, I have won the race, and I have won the faith. But he says, I have fought it, I have finished it, and I have kept it. Paul sounds like he's happy with the participation trophy here, right? But it's the, the reason why is this. Paul knows Paul knows that his whole life, his whole ministry, everything that he's suffered, gone through, and given himself over to has always been rooted and dependent on the mercy and grace of God alone. That it is God who has carried him through all of it, and therefore the glory, the victory, the trophy belongs to God himself and not to Paul. And Paul is perfectly happy at the end of his life, a man who has helped raise up churches from corner to corner and set a fire, set a blaze, a church planting phenomenon in Europe going into into Asia, that he would simply be, ah, I fought well, I finished well, and I have kept the faith well. The endurance athlete you may not have heard of, Rick Hoyt, died May 22nd, 2023. Rick Hoyt completed in 72 marathons and six Ironman triathlons. The last time I did a 5K was maybe three years ago during the pandemic. So that gives you a sense of what kind of athlete he is versus I am. In 1992, He ran and biked across the whole United States. 
3,735 miles in total. Amazing. Endurance athletes are insane, right? I'm always amazed at what they're able to pull off. And this guy, 72 marathons, six Ironman triathlons. Here's the incredible kicker. Rick Hoyt. Rick Hoyt had cerebral palsy. He had no ability to control his muscles, and he could not move. In every single race Rick Hoyt ran, biked, or swam, his father, Dick Hoyt, pushed or pulled him in a wheelchair or in a boat. In fact, in those triathlons, he would lay in a boat, and his father swam and pulled him by a rope. His father, Dick Hoyt, did this for 40 years because when Rick turned 15, he said to his dad the first time they raced together, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. The reality is, is Rick Hoyt, endurance athlete, never took a single step. He never pedaled a single bike. He never swam a single stroke. Yet after every single race, he took home a medal and he celebrated with a finisher's joy. You know, we often compare life to a marathon or a race that we're running or a long fight that we'll endure. And by faith, what the gospel tells us, what the Bible shows us, what Paul is uh, showing us here in 2 Timothy, right, is that the race we run looks more like Rick Hoyt and his cerebral palsy than it does like Dick Hoyt, his father who carried him through all of it. Because whatever trials and challenges we have faced or will face, friends, it will only be by the grace of God we will get pulled through them. That whatever finish lines we cross, it will be by Christ's grace and strength who carries us over the finish line. Because the great hope and great promise for each and every one of us who trust in him today is not that we get to win the race of life, stand at the top of the podium, get first place and have God say, yay, here is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. He already said it once about Jesus and he's never going to say it again about anyone else. But as his spirit, as God and Christ's spirit dwells in you and me, it means we can run in participation with our Savior in a manner where we can say, when I am with you, Jesus, no longer do I feel spiritually handicapped. Because you are running the race for me. You are pedaling this race for me. You are dragging me in this boat for me. And here's the beauty, that at the finish line, verse 8, as Paul himself says, when I cross that finish line, in light of this good fight I have fought, uh, the race that I have ran, uh, the faith that I have kept, that he himself is saying, I will be, and we will all be awarded a crown of righteousness by Christ himself. And what seems like, again, participation trophy, which none of us uh, particularly like participation trophies. I see a lot of Asians in here. Asians don't do participation trophies, right? Like, I grow up. I remember as a kid, my parents threw out all the participation ones. They only kept the ones where I actually won something, right? Didn't have much of a trophy case, to be honest, right? It may seem like a participation trophy, but guess what? We are participating in the glory of the Savior of Jesus, of the, the creator and redeemer of the whole world, the one who will restore righteousness and justice upon all the land. We get to participate with him, 
glory on glory on glory that is not ours to begin with, but he gives us and shares with us and invites us to take hold of. This is what awaits us in the return of Jesus. How does that shape and mold how you live today? How does that rest in your heart today then? It means that all the cultural idols of success, of achievement, of influence, of power that we're constantly chasing, that we're constantly looking for, it's fleeting and it will not last. But the humility and the generosity and the sacrifice and the grace of our Savior is eternal and he has given it to us so that we might live out of those characteristics and attributes in our everyday lives. That's the glory we get to share with Jesus. And he's inviting you to participate in today. It means that we don't have to live for kingdoms of our own making and constantly desire more and more and more because frankly, let's be honest, the more you get, the more you want. But in reality, we can live in the satisfaction that Christ will establish a beautiful kingdom in his return. We can live with gratitude and thanksgiving that God has invited us to be a part of that rather than live out of a demand and need that, God, why can't you give me more? When he says, look, I've given you everything and I am dragging you across the finish line of life. I want to close with this. I went on a hike. I have two daughters. Uh, age four and age three, beautiful, most beautiful little girls ever. Um, and I went on a hike with them. This is me and them a couple of months ago. My second daughter, uh, and this is so when she was two, my second daughter is built like a bowling ball, super cute, but just uh, hefty, right? Just really like all the weight is really centered really well. And so she's also at the age where she's still not ready to walk. So put on the hiking backpack, strap her on, and so we go for a hike out here in the, uh, I think it was Oakland Hills. We go for a hike, and we're going. It's getting pretty hot. Kids are starting to get tired. Uh, Daddy, we're tired. Daddy, I don't want to walk anymore. And that's the kid on my back, too, who's like, I don't know why you're complaining. Uh, Daddy, we're hungry. And so, you know, you, you suffer through it for the time that you can, you carry them through, grab a snack. We start walking back. So eventually we get back. And about a, we went about two and a half, three miles total. We get back to the van. And my second daughter, Naomi, who's in my backpack, as I'm uh, taking off the backpack, setting her down, and she's still strapped in, strap her down, uh, take her off. She's sitting there in the backpack still, looks up at me. And she goes, Daddy, Daddy, we did it. And... <laughs> Me, sweating, tired, <gasps> exhausted. All I honestly could say to her as she said that was, yeah, we did it, honey. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> we did it, you know. Church, that's the hope we have in Christ. That's what we get to tell Jesus when this is all said and done. Jesus, we did it. Jesus, we did it. And, and you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, emerge church. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. That's the glory and the beauty of what God is inviting you to. May that strengthen and encourage you and empower you for this coming year to be at the root 
of how you think and view what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to build this church in its, and as you anticipate what God is going to do here at Emerge. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you um, just for this unique opportunity to come and to be a part of the service here at Emerge and for this time to be able to bring glory and honor to your name, uh, to be able to participate um, with my brothers and sisters here in the glory of worship and to uh, rest assured that, uh, Father, you will take us all the way. And so may we live with a great hope and joy of knowing that, Lord, uh, there's just really no other way to go, uh, but this is the best way. It's the most beautiful way, and it's the most gracious way. Father, for it's not dependent on us, but it's all been accomplished and done for us in Jesus. So be with the merge. Bless this church as they seek to honor and glorify your name in all that you are leading them into in this coming year and the years to come as well. Father, walk with them, be with them, and make them know that, Lord, your kingdom will come, that your will will be done, and that there will be a day when all is said and done, they will be able to look you in the eye and tell you, Lord, we did it, and you will, with the great love and comfort of all heaven, say to emerge, yes, we did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.